0: Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Hey, you guys can grab a seat. Hey, if you're brand new here tonight with us, welcome. Really glad that you're here. My name is Jason. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Point Church. If you are typically with us or members around here, tonight's a little different than a normal Sunday morning. Um, not that I try to be cute on a Sunday morning, but I certainly am okay with punchlines and humor. And that's gonna be missing tonight. This is a little different. There's gonna be lots of scripture, not so many stories, a little bit more reflective. Um, my job tonight is to put some weight in the room. This is an important weekend for us as Christians. Um, um, this is a weekend that reminds us, uh, it's a weekend full of memorial. We're here to memorialize the, the death of Christ tonight And we'll come back Sunday morning to memorialize his resurrection, that he's not still dead. For us, this is a reminder that what we are attached to is a movement. This is not mere philosophy. We're not here tonight to try to learn how to be nice to people that we secretly hate. We're not trying to white knuckle ourselves through telling truth when our heart still very much loves lies. We're here tonight to remember that this is historical, that there was a man who was God and we killed him. He died in our place for our sins. Sunday, we will gather to celebrate what he did for us, what he has done to us. But tonight, we must dwell on what we did to God, what we did to Christ. We killed God. Before we can get there, I wanna take us to Exodus chapter 12. You can turn there with me, or you can follow along on uh, the screen. I wanna take us all the way back to the promise that God had made to Abraham was starting to come into fruition, but then there was a curveball thrown to the family. As Abraham's promise uh, came true. He became a dad, and then a grandpa, and then a great grandpa. And the family began to grow and develop, and they became became like a, a clan, really. Uh, lots of them. And then there's the food dried up. The rains stopped pouring. The crops go dry, and Israel finds themselves in is- is his family. Israel at the time, they find themselves wandering down to Egypt because Egypt is where the stimulus checks are. That's where the uh, you know the uh, the welfare cheese and the baloney's at. Like, I, I grew up on that stuff, so we're not knocking that. Like, that's where it's at. So they go down to Egypt, and as they live in Egypt, one of uh, Abraham's great-great-grandsons becomes the right-hand man to Pharaoh. He becomes the vice president of all of Egypt. And they live and they dwell there for years and years and years until a Pharaoh is raised up who does not know Joseph, does not remember Joseph, who was a descendant of Abraham. And they realize that the people of God... Abraham's descendants have become so great in numbers that if they made a pact with a rival nation, they could defeat Egypt from the inside out. So they stripped the Israelites of their dignity. They stripped them of their uh, civil rights. They treated them as property, as livestock, as slaves. And they lived and worked and longed and prayed to go home as they were in exile. And they wondered, God, how much longer? And as they wondered, God, how much longer? God raised up a man named Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and back to their home country, which is what we now call the state of, the government of Israel, the land of Israel. And as God raises Moses up, Moses is prominent in Egyptian culture and Egyptian government. He's well loved by the Pharaoh himself. And Moses goes with a difficult request. He says, hey, you know my people came here during a drought and it's time for us to go home. We've been here long enough, it's time to go home. Will you let me and my people return home? And the Pharaoh would go back and forth on his uh, thoughts and sometimes he would say yes, then he would take it back. And ultimately what happened is Moses has to go to Pharaoh and say, listen, if you don't let us go, God is going to judge you. And he pours out plagues, and all these plagues fall upon Egypt. And this final great plague that's going to fall upon Egypt is that the firstborn of all um, people, livestock, everything, an angel, we call it the death angel, is going to pass over Egypt. And anyone who does not walk in covenant with God is going to lose the firstborn heir to their family, the firstborn of their livestock, and there's going to be blood to pay for the disobedience and the defiance of what God is wanting to do through his people, and so we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. In Exodus twelve, three, Moses has heard from God, and God is telling Moses, this is what every Israelite must do. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, either one, it doesn't matter, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. And in this manner, you shall eat. So he's going to tell them how to dress for the occasion, dress with anticipation, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. This isn't the first time we've seen this act of intense wrath and intense rage of God and immense love and immense grace poured out on his people, both love and justice. If you could love and justice and make a cross out of that. And so you can imagine there's this immense wrath poured out on all of those who took lightly the warning of God, those who didn't take the firstborn, the unblemished, and put the blood on the doorpost. And, and, and as the death angel passed over, can you imagine the terror and the screaming and the pain and the anguish and the guilt and the, and the disbelief that they had such lack of faith in what the God of the Israelites would do? But could you also imagine on the next morning as the death angel passed over, and if you can envision blood on the doorpost and blood running down the post and dripping down in the floor uh, as, as you would walk into the house, and could you imagine the, the, the tears of joy and the embraces and everyone who's, who's thankful to God that their family was spared. And from this great event, we see the Passover, It becomes a feast and a festival that for years and years and years, the people of God would remember that God passed over them and passed over them with judgment and poured judgment out on those who were not his children, but poured out grace and mercy on those who were his children. We see this another time in scripture with the great flood, when God picked a family and said, I'm going to spare you. If you'll build a boat in the middle of a desert where it's never rained before, I want you to find really good land and build a really good boat and then wait on the rain to come. And I imagine people would ask, Noah, why are you building a boat? Well, because it's going to rain. Well, who told you that? God. Well, I don't believe him. I know you don't believe him, but hey, I really wish you'd get on this boat with me. And then, of course, the rains come, God seals the door, and it's an act of immense wrath and and an act of intense grace all in one. Below the waterline as the water's rise is God's wrath poured out upon sinful people uh, who are judged for their sins. Above the waterline are those who are in the ark or who are in Christ if they trust in his life, death, and resurrection, and they are spared from God's wrath, and they are in Christ, and grace has been poured out upon them. And when the boat reaches dry land, they walk out and reestablish civilization, and life goes on. So as we have that imagery in our mind, I want to take us... Uh, a few thousand years forward into John chapter 19. As the Israelites make their way back to Israel, eventually they become a nation with a superpower. They have prophets and priests and kings. They have prophets who speak truth to power, bringing the people of God back into repentance when they would get wayward with cultural idolatry and, 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 and ideology. And they would have kings who would rule and reign and represent God's authority over the nation, and they would have priests who would make sacrifices of atonement uh, for the forgiveness of sins of the people. And families would bring in a a blood offering. They'd bring in a lamb or a goat or a bull or a pigeon, and their sins would be forgiven for another year on the Day of Atonement. And so they had this ceremonial law. They had a civil law. They had a nation. They were a superpower. And then they would sin against God. And as they would sin against God culturally in these great narratives, God would judge them. And parts of the ways that he would judge them is he would allow foreign nations to overcome them and overtake them. And so Babylon had brought Israelite Israelites out into exile. They've been overtaken many times. Eventually, they get to restore their land and rebuild their walls and restore what once was. But as we fast forward to the days of the incarnation of Christ, they live now as a nation within a nation. They've been overtaken by Rome. Rome basically said you can have your temple, you can have your ceremonies, you can have your sacrifices, you can have your priests, you can have your your religion as long as you pay your taxes, and as long as you never revolt and rise up against us, then you can be. And so this is the time when Christ comes. This is when he steps into human history. And so at this point, Christ shows up. The promises are starting to be fulfilled and so much of this is going over the heads of the Israelites. We have all of this um, typology and all of this symbolism that points to this one who will come and lay his life down for his people. And so Jesus is born to a virgin. That promise is fulfilled. Uh, he lives a life of righteousness. He's w- completely without sin. It's not that he didn't have to be human and didn't have to make mistakes. I'm sure he had to learn how to drive. He would have the car a couple of times. He had to learn how to make a bowl of cereal and spill the milk. He had to learn how to talk. Maybe he had a lisp for a while. Maybe he struggled with reading retention a bit in all of the human ways. But he was also uh, never one to lust after someone, uh, whether it was same-sex attraction or heterosex attraction, tempted in all ways by the devil in the wilderness. He never succumbed to those uh, attractions. Um, He was also tempted with power, tempted in all sorts of ways, and never broke a a single one of God's commands. So when we say that Jesus is righteous, what we're saying is he's completely without sin. He lives a life for 30-something years completely without sin, When he turns about 30 years old, he begins his public ministry. He's baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. God speaks and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus begins to raise people from the dead. He begins to heal the sick, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak. And everyone's around him with great anticipation to think, who is this man going to be? Who's he going to be? And they're expecting him to be some kind of political figure, someone who's going to restore Israel back to what they once were in the days of David, in the days of Solomon. And so they looked with disdain upon being a nation within a nation because they were the people of God. And so in their eyes, they looked for a George Washington. They looked for an Abraham Lincoln. They looked to what some have looked in, Barack Obama, and others have looked in a Donald Trump type figure someone who's going to make Israel great again or restore things back to what they were or lift up the downtrodden and the marginalized and bring us to a place of dignity and prominence. And so everyone's gathered around and then Christ is starting to gain popularity and he would withdraw And as he would withdraw, he would take naps and pray and and try not to get too popular for all the wrong reasons. And eventually there's a great collision with the government and with Christ because Rome is putting heat on Israel and Israel is putting heat on the disciples and trying to figure out, are you Jewish or not? And what Jesus is trying to say is, no, God is doing a new thing. We're starting a church. Jesus is the first ever church planter. He comes to, with his life, live a righteous life so he can give that away to those who would trust in him by faith. And he has come to go to the cross and it freaked his followers out. Even to the point that one of his followers named Peter says, you'll never go to the cross. We won't let it happen. And it's just like us to try to, through works, you know, get to God, try to get to God through our performance and how we're gonna protect Jesus and we're gonna fight for Jesus. And Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like I've been called a lot of things in my life But nobody's ever called me the devil, especially Jesus. But Jesus calls Peter Satan because the most satanic thing that could happen on this earth is if Jesus would have been deceived and tempted by the evil one and not gone to the cross in our place for our sins. So Christ goes. He's arrested. One of his best friends betrays him for a bag full of money. They find him in the garden of Gethsemane where he's asked his best friends to pray and they fall asleep. They can't stay up. They're exhausted. Jesus begins to pray as his sweat becomes blood and he asks three times if there's any other way for him to um, atone for us, to go in our place without having to become our sin on the cross. And as he cries out, God, please let this, pass, this cup pass from me. God is silent. He doesn't answer his son. And so Christ is arrested, he's kissed on the cheek by Judas, he's taken into a trial, it goes quickly, they see no guilt with him, he's presented before uh, the people, the mass, the the crowd, and he's canceled out immediately. Uh, Pilate stands Jesus and uh, a man named Barabbas, who could be a rapist or a murderer, we don't know what his crime was, but he was the one to be hung on that cross that day, not Jesus. The people cry out and they scream, release to us, Barabbas, release to us, Barabbas. What about Jesus? Let his blood be on us and on our children. So in that day, Jesus goes in place of Barabbas. Barabbas goes in place of Jesus. This is great foreshadowing for you and for me. As the people cry out in hate speech, let his blood be on us and on our children. That would eventually be worship songs that we would sing like, have you been cleansed? Have you been washed in the blood? as the Lord redeems what is meant for evil and uses it for good. So Christ with His life is perfect. He's without sin. As He's been falsely accused and He's been rushed into really uh, an, an alien Uh, execution because he didn't deserve this. He trades places with Barabbas. He carries his cross. He's been beaten with the cat of nine tails. As they whipped him, flesh would rip from his skin. Shards of bone would fly out across the room. He's beaten beyond recognition. He's stripped completely naked, uh, becoming all of our shame and all of our guilt. And then he's hung on the cross. And uh, as he hangs there, he cries out several things, but we're going to get to the death of Jesus in, in John 19, verse 28. After this, which is all the things and many more things that I've just told you, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. What's interesting, and this is how God works, when you're praying for your kid to get their stuff together tomorrow. And when you're praying for that person you're going to marry in your teens, and when you're looking for God to move, I want you to know God is patient and slow and steady, but always on time. What's the significance of the hyssop branch? All the way back in Exodus 12, it was the hyssop branch that they used to take the blood from the unspotted lamb and put on the doorpost, which is complete foreshadowing of the blood stains that would be left on the cross from Christ's Nail-pierced hands. What did he mean by it is finished? It meant two things. It is finished. Jesus is the perfect lamb. As Israel would grab a goat or a lamb, or maybe they had to go to their neighbor and say, man, I, don't, I need to borrow one. Everyone was cool. Everyone was covered. Everybody was able to have a sacrifice. They were able to eat good and dress up and be ready to go and leave town when, when God would tell them to. And so they were covered with, by the blood on their doorpost. And so it's finished that Jesus is that unspotted lamb. He's the one who is without sin. What that means is that Jesus is our righteousness. Man, so many of you are here, and what you think Christianity is, just like I used to think Christianity is, it is like, man, I don't know anything about the Bible. I need to know the Bible. If I'll know the Bible, I'll know Jesus. God will love me, and he'll accept me if I go from ignorant to have in theology. Some of you show up and you roll up and you go, man, I, I have done horrible things. Man, I have done drugs. I have sold drugs. I have slept around. I have, I have had abortions. I have whatever it, you, you name it. There's adultery in this room. There is lying in this room. There is cheating in this room. There are scandals in this room. There are broken laws and broken commandments on our hands and in our hearts, every single one of us. And some of us come to the Lord and we say, what are the things I need to do to make that go away? We're just like Peter who's saying, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll just never tell a lie. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll never listen to good music again. I will only do Christian music forever. No offense if you're a Christian artist. We love you. Safe place. You think that you're going to use the commandments as 10 rungs on a ladder and you're going to fix your life and present yourself to God like you are the sacrifice, but Christ is the sacrifice in your place. Some of us think that we're gonna go from losing to winning, that we need to improve ourselves, get God's attention, and he will like us. Maybe that's how you had to get your dad's attention. Maybe that's the way you you went to college. Maybe that's how you get promoted at work. Maybe that's how you found affection or accolades, but it isn't so in the kingdom of God. That isn't the way we become Christians. See, it is finished. There's no work for us to do but to rest in the work of Christ. When Christ says it is finished, what he means is with our works, we do all the sinning. With his work, he does all the saving. There's no requirements on our part to receive righteousness, to become righteousness, except by believing by faith. What does that look like? Every one of you got here tonight by trusting that when you turned the key on your car, it would start that when you pulled out into traffic, you had gas and you would go, that when you rolled up to a stop sign, you could hit the brakes and it would stop. You put a great level of trust in that vehicle and you're trusting every time you pass someone on Cactus or Litchfield, especially Bill, you're trusting that they're gonna stay in their lane. You're putting a lot of faith in a lot of people and in a lot of things all the time. Some of you would say, how can you believe this stuff by faith? Do you realize all the stuff you believe by faith every single day? You eat Cheetos and live by faith. I said I wouldn't be funny. I lied. See? <laughs> Liars get saved too. <laughs> can't help it. It's just who I am. By faith, we trust that we will become right with God by believing that Jesus was perfect and he gives us his Perfection. On Good Friday, we believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and lived it in our place because we cannot live that way. So with his life, Jesus is our example. He is. But if Jesus is only our example, it is a damnable religion that would damn us all to hell if we really only lived by a WWJD bracelet because all it can do is condemn and convict. What would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't sleep with her. What would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't change his sexual orientation because of his dysphoria. What would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't rip that guy off. What would Jesus do? Well, he would pay his taxes. What would Jesus do? Well, he would forgive that guy for for what he did to him. What would Jesus do? He would reconcile relationships. See, we know what Jesus would do when we look in our lives and go, I want to do what Jesus would do Ish, right? What would Jesus do ish? Kind of, sort of, you know? Kind of, sort of. So if He's only our example, we can't live up to what Christ has done with His life. But Jesus says it's finished. He's not only our example, He's our provider. He provides for us righteousness. He provides for us atonement. He provides for us forgiveness. It is finished. Jesus is the sacrifice in our place. He is the unblemished lamb. As the death angel passes over, he spots the blood and says, they are good. When we stand before Jesus at the great judgment, at the end of all time, we'll stand before Christ, we'll be separated to the left and the right. And what will separate us? The blood of Jesus. It isn't our morality, it isn't our theology, it isn't our success in awards and promotions at work and our kids making good grades. Those things add value to life, all those things are important, they're not stupid or dumb or minimal, it's just not the currency in the kingdom of heaven. The currency is, did you by faith trust in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Or did you trust that you could perform your way out of guilt? Did you trust that you could earn your way and get or unrighteousness removed from you and become righteous, level up to the point that you were without sin? See, some of us, we don't believe that, but we function that way. We know that we can't remove sin because it haunts us. But what we'll do with a religious heart is compare ourselves to other people and go, well, I don't sin as bad as they do. I don't do what they've done. I don't think like they think. I don't say what they would say. And so we, we grade ourselves by a curve and we grade much harsher everyone else. But it's finished. We don't have to perform to get God to love us. Christ's performance is what saves us. And what about our sin? Are you telling me that I can just pray to this perfect Jesus and say, hey, my bad, I'm so sorry for all that I've done. Will you come in my life and show me how to live? Are you telling me it's that simple? yes. I'm telling you for 2,000 plus years, people have believed in their heart that Jesus raised from the dead and confessed with their lips that he is the Lord of their life and they have been saved. You say, how can that happen? Because God does not have a be cool man approach to sin. And some of you struggle to forgive others because you think forgiveness is making light of sin. It's not. Forgiveness is making much of the cross of Christ. Say, How could I forgive a lie like that? How could I forgive someone who would say those things about me? How could I forgive someone who withheld so much affection and so much love? How can this father wound just be healed between me and my dad? Or or how can I forgive my mom for, for all that she's done? How can I forgive my husband or my wife for being so unfaithful? Well, what we're not asking you to do is pretend like it never happened. What we would never ask you to do is just rock along like it's no big deal. What we would ask you to do is believe and have faith that the God who is angry and wrath-filled and will make sin pay in full for its crimes. We have all committed um, cosmic treason against the Creator who's our God. We've declared war against Him in the cosmos, in our hearts. We've taken glory for ourselves. We've taken the created things, the created order, and we've used them in a way to gratify our own desires. We bend life around our own wants and our own attitudes and our own affections. And the Christian is the one who says, I trust in Christ. My heart is made new by Holy Spirit. And I begin to bend my life around Jesus and his word and his commandments. And my life becomes to not look like a bunch of sacrifices I'm making to make God love me, but it looks like worship. My life begins to change because I'm overwhelmed by the love of God because he in my place did what I can't do. He was faithful when I was unfaithful. He was faith-filled when I was faithless. And he gives me credit for all he's done. And he takes the blame for all I am. So as Christ is hanging on the cross and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, I believe in the seen realm and the unseen realm that God has made both of those things. He made um, what we can't see. He made angels that rebelled against God and became demons. He also made us, planets, animals, people, air, water, oceans. He made the seen and the unseen. And what we see is the man, Jesus, dying, hanging on a cross, trying to lift himself up with his feet to catch his last breath to call out, It's finished. They they give him the the, the sour wine with the with the hyssop to give them the imagery of the painted door all those years ago back in Egypt, and he gives up his spirit. And in that moment, God pours his wrath out on Christ for all of Old Testament Israel. Every year at the Day of Atonement, when every family would bring their lamb or their bull or their pigeon to their priest. And all this blood would be spilled every year as the priests would prepare. Yes, it would be like a great barbecue day for them. Yes, they would feast, but also all this blood would cover the altar. And it was symbolic of that someone has to pay, someone has to go in the place of all these people, just like the unspotted lamb had to go in the place of the firstborn son in Old Testament back in the days of Egypt and Israel. Jesus paid in full for our sins. He became your adultery. He became your lies. He became your judgmentalism. He became all your isms. He became all your sexual sin. He became all the things that you could get creative and do. You're like, even? Even. He became those things for all of Old Testament Israel. All those sacrifices made were like layaway, waiting to be paid in full, a down payment, A foreshadowing that one would come, that we wouldn't have the day of atonement because it would be eternal, paid in full. And that's what Christ did at the cross. And so for the New Testament church, we sing the songs of Christ and Him coming. We sing about His blood. We've poured out juice to remind us of His blood. We have ripped apart bread that we'll feast on tonight to remind us of His broken body because Jesus paid in full for our sins. See, our grudges against one another when someone sins against us is pathetic compared to what God has poured out. If you're a Christian, your sin has been paid in full once and for all by Jesus himself. He became your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God took him who knew no sin. He was an innocent man. He caused him to become sin, not by his actions, not by his deeds, but by imputation." By imputation, your guilty verdict was placed in Christ's place. And by imputation, his innocent verdict was put in your place. We literally trade places with Jesus. In the throne room of heaven, the very same voice that spoke and said, let there be light and there was, said, let Jason be innocent and I am. He said, let you be innocent and you were because by faith you trusted in the work of Christ. And tonight we're here to remember That as the blood covered the doorpost in Old Testament Israel, the blood of the cross covers all of our sins. We are right with God, not because God has made light of sin, but He has made much of what Christ has done with His innocent blood, that we could be saved. So tonight, those first century disciples had to wonder was He just a Donald Trump? Was He just a Barack Obama? Was he just a Abraham Lincoln, a George Washington? Was he just this great man that said some crazy things and he's dead? He's dead. You and I have chronological snobbery. We know how the story goes. It's so hard for me to just preach this like a funeral because I know the man ain't dead. He's alive. So tonight we do the work of remembering his life and his death, his becoming our sin. Not to guilt you, but to remember and celebrate. You can walk away from your sin and you don't have to hold that grudge against those who have sinned against you because either Christ has paid in full or the sinner will pay in full for all eternity. You don't have to be the judge. Let God be the judge. Okay? I want to take us to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 26, says this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Family and friends, and heck, if you're an enemy here tonight, I pray you'll be saved and become a brother or sister in Christ. We're about to go to the tables and enjoy communion. And tonight I hope that you can do that and not, not just feeling like this is a funeral and that Christ is dead and he stayed dead. But let this be a very sobering moment for us to step into the reality that when we remember this, when we eat the bread, let us remember that Jesus was really broken because of our sins And as we drink the juice, let us remember that His blood covers our sins, that that we can confidently go to these tables and enjoy this feast and celebrate that Christ went in our place, that He was faithful to follow the blueprints to the universe that the Father had laid out for Him. And because of His life, because of His death, and on Sunday we will celebrate His resurrection, the Holy Spirit of God has come into our lives and has given us the capacity to live from the righteous name he's given us. Friends, you are innocent, not by deed. Like I know you, wrote, you drove over here and that wasn't an innocent drive. I know for some of you, you're like, oh my gosh, it's five o'clock. It starts at six. I thought it was 6.30. You always think it's 6.30. I, I know, I know. Like I'm leaving the house. I'm like, my iPad's not even charged. Like what are we gonna do? Like, I guess we'll tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. You know? but you are innocent because of your faith in Christ. Some of you need to rest. Some of you have never tasted grace and you really do think you're gonna outperform all of us and I'm gonna plant more churches than that guy. I'm gonna get God to love me. Like, no, man, that isn't how it works. Rest in the shade of Christ's provision. You are free from the proven grounds of life. Everything else in life works that way. Perform at work to get raises or know the boss. That's how it works. But in the kingdom of heaven, all you got to do is know Jesus and rest in his performance, okay? And then you are forgiven. Some of you need to hear that. You need to know that. You need to believe that and live from that. Some of you like, understand the concept of forgiveness, and you know that Christ provides that for other people. And some of you think, how can I be forgiven, or how can I really have dignity? Don't you know how I was touched? Don't you know the things that were said to me? Or don't you know what I've done to others with these hands or with this, this, these lips? And I would say, yes, yes, yes. see, I'm a pastor and people love to get coffee with me and and meet with me. And they think they're going to tell me like, you know, I bet you've never heard this. And sometimes, no, nope, I hadn't. I had never heard that. But nothing surprises me anymore. And all of us, man, we all are haunted by those same three days, those same words we said, those same things we've done. Man, everybody in this room, like we, if we all stood up and really told on ourselves, and we won't, that'd be weird. And you, yeah, we won't do that. But it would be the same narratives over and over again. Y'all would be so surprised. And you're so known. God knows. Your group don't know yet. And there may be stuff your spouse don't even know about you, but God knows. And the scriptures tell us from the foundation of the world, you were foreknown by God, you were on his mind. What does it mean you were foreknown? It means he knew what you would do behind those bleachers. He knew what you would do whenever you were at a dark place and you needed to get through college and not sleep for a week. He knew what you took. God knows how you deal with stress. He knows how you cope. He knows the things you've said. He knows the affection you you have withdrawn from others, but he doesn't withdraw it from you. He knows you, man. You're known and you're loved, and you're accepted. And it isn't philosophy that gets us there. This isn't some feel-good Tony Robbins speech. I'm not just going to cuss at you and make you cry and then say, it's all better. I'll do those things and preach the gospel to you. Sorry. (laughs) I love you, and I want you to know that you are loved by Jesus. Yes, he's faithful first to the Father, but you have been foreknown. You have been predestined. You have been called, and you will be justified. You'll get a new body, and it'll be like you've never sinned because all the things Jesus promised has come true, and he said he'll come back. And so we wait, and we say, how long? Just like Israel and Egypt waiting to go home. You and I are waiting to go home, but I want you to know, in a sense, you're already there. If you'll trust in the life and death of Jesus, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to come to the table and join us for communion. It's for anybody who's here tonight that is a Christian. Um, If you're not a Christian, I would ask you to sit in this moment and sit this out. Your next step would not be uh, to go to the table, but it would be to tell someone that you are a Christian or you would like to be a Christian. And I'll be available uh, to meet with you after the service. I'll be here at the front of this room. And if you'd like prayer or you'd like to talk about what God's stirring up in your heart when we walk through the verses of the Bible, I'd love to pray with you and meet with you. So for those of you who are walking with Jesus, who can confidently go to the table believing that you've trusted in his life and death and resurrection, join us at the table. If you have questions... Or you think, I think something happened to me while you were talking. I think I trust in Jesus like I haven't before. Man, come tell me about it. I can't wait to hear it after the service, all right? I love you. Let's, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for good news. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power of God's word. I thank you that you work through preaching, but you don't work because of preaching. I thank you that you take this folly and this foolishness and this man who's doing his best to live above reproach and walk in the light of your word. God, I I know that you can use speech to bear witness with one another. And I pray that you would use this sermon as conduit to take the gospel of good news to our hearts and give us hope and give us forgiveness and give us faith to rest in you and to give us rest from, from labor. Some of us are performing our way to try to get you to notice us, And may we believe that we are so noticed and so known, intimately known by the Father. We have no idea how known we truly are, how forgiven we truly are. And so, Father, I pray that we would walk to the table tonight and enjoy this meal with the most confidence we ever have. And, Father, for my friends who came tonight as a favor to someone or with questions or curiosity or even cynicism in their heart, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd give them hope that they could see the colors of the world again that their shame would be removed and their guilt would be lifted and they would see themselves as sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Christ and to each other. God, dump out bucket loads of hope in this room tonight as we remember that we're a part of history, not philosophy, that we have hope in the man who is God, who came in our place, died in our place, and on Sunday, raised from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.